Section 7 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Matthias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1 Continued Need for substituting in all spheres the principle of prevention on a general basis for methods of cure on a specific basis. As we have seen, unreliability of sensory appreciation has been and still is associated with a general deterioration in the standard of the health of mankind. Consequently, in the matter of making decisions, man's conceptions and thoughts have been and still are conditioned by this unreliable sensory appreciation, and still lead him, as in the past, to erroneous conclusions and decisions in the settlement of the new problems with which he has been continually confronted. Nowhere can we find a better illustration of the erroneous conceptions leading to unbalanced judgment, which are associated with unreliable sensory appreciation, than in man's choice of a specific cure on the end-gaining principle, namely, quote-unquote, physical exercises. It was this erroneous estimate of the relative value of the principles of prevention and cure which permitted him to make this choice, and so to neglect the means whereby principle which is involved in all preventive procedure. We have evidence of similar unbalanced judgment in all other spheres where the attempted improvement of the individual is concerned, and the erroneous decisions and opinions which result from unbalanced judgment in these spheres are analogous to the error man made in choosing a specific cure in his attempts to stem the tide of general deterioration. Each generation has fallen into the same error in this connection, and in this way has built up a heavy burden for the succeeding one, inasmuch as the necessity for cure has increased and still continues to increase at a pace which bids fair to heap upon the individuals of coming generations such a load as will be beyond the power of human endurance. If the methods which have led to this undesirable situation are ever reviewed by the individuals upon whom will devolve the onerous duty of carrying on the scheme called civilization, we shall probably be written down by them as poor, subconsciously directed human beings, rushing wildly from one extreme to another in the howling wilderness of twentieth-century wonders. Such a review will provide abundant proof of the lowered standard of reliability of sensory appreciation in the human beings of our time, which has caused them to become overbalanced in many directions and consequently has deluded them into experimenting blindly in too many spheres. Disaster has followed such experiments in chemistry and death-dealing machines, for instance, in exactly the same way as it would follow the activities of children well supplied with powder and matches. The historian of a century or two hence will be able to produce evidence of the psychophysical state of the peoples of the 20th century which will show that in this regard they have progressed little on the evolutionary plane beyond the men of the Stone Age, whilst on the other hand, he will only have to refer to human activities during the years 1914 to 1918 to convince the most skeptical that human beings of our time have developed a new form of devilry and brutality that surpasses the best efforts of prehistoric men. 
Should we decide, however, at the present time upon a retrospection, such as I have suggested, we can hardly fail to see that a psychological moment in man's experience has undoubtedly arrived for a widespread consideration of the principle of prevention in its fullest application to human needs, in all physical, mental, or spiritual spheres, as they are presented to us at this present world crisis. Investigation will show that the proportion of human energy devoted to prevention and cure in the 20th century in all these spheres may be fairly said to be as nine to one in favor of cure. That this is so after some thousands of years of supposed civilization gives food for reflection. For the idea of seeking and adopting a specific cure has its origin, as we have seen, in the experiences of a lowly evolved type of human creature, belonging to an earlier period of human development. It goes with a view of life which is narrow and limited, since it represents an attempt on man's part to gain an immediate end without consideration of larger issues. We are therefore faced with the fact, hitherto almost unrecognized, that our adoption of the principle of cure with its associated and gaining procedures, as the basis of our attempted reforms in all spheres, means that the foundation of too many of our cherished ideals and beliefs today is the same as that from which were built up the instinctive procedures of our earlier ancestors when they sought a cure in some specific herb or berry. On the other hand, a scheme of life in which prevention is the leading principle does not involve working for an immediate end. Its application, rather, is on a broad constructive basis, without limits, humanly speaking, and is the product of a consciously conceived and consciously executed plan. In short, it is the conception of a highly evolved type of human creature. Illustration 1 I need not detain my readers with the many obvious illustrations of the lack of reasoning associated with all methods of cure. I will give three instances, beginning with what is called the liver cure. A man feels out of sorts and has suffered from certain symptoms for a year or more. He at last consults his medical advisor and is told that his liver is sluggish. He is ordered to take some grains of calomel or some such drug, and goes home with the conviction that all will now be well. He has his remedy, and the plan is so simple. If the symptoms recur, all he has to do is to swallow the prescribed number of grains of his drug. This applies to the whole list of such cures. At this point, I would beg my reader not to judge my standpoint until I have placed my evidence before him. We, the people of the 20th century, pride ourselves that we are a reasoning race. At any rate, we have employed the processes of reasoning in far more spheres than our forebears of several centuries ago. This being so, why have the reasoning processes been so comparatively little employed in connection with those problems and the solution of which our present and future well-being depends? Let us consider, for instance, how the person of our illustration reasons in connection with his sluggish liver and his calomel remedy. It is quite understandable that, on the occasion of an acute attack, he should follow the instructions of his doctor, 
take his grains of calomel and so get clear, as he considers it, of a crisis. But why does the matter end there, as far as he personally is concerned? He has probably been aware of trouble for quite a long time, and now he has it on his doctor's authority that his liver is unduly inactive. As a matter of fact, he has suspected this himself, led to the conclusion by the presence of certain symptoms, and by the knowledge that his sedentary life and his overindulgence in certain foods and drinks, which are particularly gratifying to his non-too-reliable sensory appreciation, in this case particularly this sense of taste, are liable to have caused the trouble. This being so, one would expect him to show some intelligent recognition of the real situation. It would not require any special degree of reasoning to enable him to grapple successfully with the obvious facts of his case. But, unfortunately, he does not think beyond the crisis of the moment. He is set only on being cured of his specific ill. And so, in the 20th century, he continues to act on the end-gaining principle, a procedure which was excusable in his forebears of 4,000 years ago. He has never applied, either to himself or to the difficulties encountered in the sphere of his psychophysical well-being, any other principle than that of working for an immediate end. In these spheres he has never adopted the plan of reasoning out first the common sense means whereby an end may be secured. Why should he do it now? He is simply a subconsciously controlled person in whom, in this connection, the processes of reasoning are in abeyance. An interesting fact, however, is that the drug devotee, on discovering that calomel, say, does not relieve his liver trouble, will try another drug and yet another, and so on, in spite of numerous failures. This serves to show that within one narrow groove he is prepared to make changes, actually to reason out, for instance, that even if calomel fails, podophylline may prove to be the liver elixir. But he is held down to the cure idea of the Stone Age by his confidence in drugs, and thus remains true to one of the most harmful habits which he has inherited as race instincts. Think for a moment of the harmful nature of the building process indicated in the foregoing illustration, where you have a man, supposedly advanced, still clinging to the primitive methods of cure, instead of adopting the only principle a highly evolved, reasoning human creature could conceive of or tolerate, the great comprehensive principle of prevention. If in all his decisions his reasoning processes had not been limited within such a narrow groove, it must have dawned upon him that his liver trouble was the sign that something had gone wrong with the machinery of the whole organism, a conception which would have tended to cause him to consider the guiding and controlling processes involved. For when a machine, animate or inanimate, has developed mechanical defects, that machine is not functioning at its maximum, and with the continued use of the machine, these defects not only become more and more pronounced, but actually increase in number. It is obvious, then, that as soon as the mechanical defects are recognized, all possible means should at once be employed to restore the maximum standard of mechanical functioning. 
In order to accomplish this, a knowledge of the motive, adjusting, guiding, and controlling principles of the mechanism is needed. In the case of the human mechanisms, a knowledge of the psychomechanical principles involved is necessary to their coordinated use, and this knowledge implies the possession of a sensory appreciation which is reliable. For in all cases of so-called mental and physical shortcomings, there are present imperfections and defects in the use of the psychophysical organism. If the sense registers in connection with this organism had continued in civilization to be reliable, how could these imperfections and defects have developed in a satisfactorily coordinated person? And if the sense registers are so unreliable and deceptive that a person can develop imperfections and defects in the ordinary activities of life, what may be expected as a result of his activities in remedial and other spheres, if he continues to be guided by the same imperfect sense registers which have deceived and are still deceiving him at every turn. Footnote. Many of my readers may object to these arguments and refer to some defect or imperfection which, at some time, they have removed with or without aid, as the case may be. I am quite ready to admit this but I assert that several other defects and imperfections will have been cultivated in the process. As a matter of fact, I am prepared to prove this if the objector will submit himself or herself for examination whilst he or she demonstrates the process adopted for the cure. Incidentally, I may mention that these examinations are made whilst the subject remains dressed. End of footnote. The time is not far distant when these facts will be widely recognized, and it will then be obvious that immediately we decide to do something to remove a psychophysical imperfection or defect, the first thing is to acquire gradually a reliable sensory appreciation during a process of re-education, readjustment and coordination and a basis of constructive conscious guidance and control. Illustration 2. This important point is unfortunately overlooked in all curative spheres, so that palliative and end-gaining specific methods prevail, and a good illustration of this may be found in the field of surgery. In all that follows on this point, however, I wish to make it clear that I am not lacking in the fullest appreciation of the value of surgery in special spheres or of the good results that may accrue from skillful surgery within these spheres. But I should like, if I may, to suggest that it is possible for the surgeon to confer in the future far greater benefits on humanity than those which he is conferring at the present time, if he will extend both his field of operation and his outlook to include the wider plan of prevention. Take, for instance, the major operations of the removal of the appendix or of the colon. The surgeon's business is to remove these organs in cases where he finds a condition of deterioration which justifies him in concluding that the presence of these organs is harmful or even dangerous. It will be seen, therefore, that to this extent the sphere of surgery is confined within narrow limits. The surgeon is asked to examine an organ which is functioning imperfectly 
And if he concludes from this examination that a certain stage of deterioration of the particular organ has been reached, he performs an operation. Under this method of procedure, little consideration is given to the cause or causes of the general interference with the functioning of the whole organism, an interference of which the specific deterioration of the appendix or colon is merely a symptom. Nor do I find that consideration is given, as a rule, to the fact that the operation, however skillfully performed, does not restore that standard of reliable sensory appreciation necessary to the readjustment and coordinated use of the mechanisms by means of which adequate vital activity will be restored and the dropped viscera caused to resume their normal and healthy position in the torso. This point is in no way affected by the fact that an operation may be entirely successful from the standpoint of the successful removal of an organ, which, being in a state of deterioration, is a danger to the patient. The patient recovers from this operation, but even so, what is implied by this? The patient, it is true, has escaped the result of a crisis which might have proved fatal, but we are still face to face with the same old end gaining principle. The appendix was diseased, the appendix was removed, and the patient recovers from the operation. Nothing, however, in all this has been done to introduce such a change in the working of the psychophysical mechanisms and general functioning as would prevent a continuance of the imperfect working and imperfect functioning which caused this specific trouble necessitating the operation. This original imperfect functioning not only continues, but is bound to become more and more imperfect as time goes on, and sooner or later some other dangerous symptom due to increasingly imperfect functioning is almost certain to supervene, when the same palliative remedy, surgery, will again have to be called upon to give relief in a new direction. In the recognition of these facts lies the surgeon's opportunity to pass from the narrow sphere of curative work to the greater achievements that are awaiting him in the broad and comprehensive field of prevention. Illustration 3 Another form of treatment to which I should like to draw attention in this connection is psychoanalysis. This method has enjoyed a certain publicity in recent years, but in spite of the cures which are claimed for it, I am prepared to demonstrate that it is based on the same specific and gaining principle as the less modern methods which it is claimed by some to supersede. By way of illustration, I will take the case of a person who suffers from some unreasoning fear and goes to a psychoanalyst for help in overcoming it. We will suppose that in the course of analysis, long or short as the case may be, the teacher and the pupil together unravel the knot and decide that the origin of the fear lies in some event or train of events which took place in the past and unduly excited the patient's fear reflexes and established a quote-unquote phobia. For the sake of our illustration, we will say that a cure is made. What does this cure indicate, however? Wherein lies the fundamental change in the patient's psychophysical condition? Before we can answer these questions, we must take into consideration the all-important fact to which I drew attention at the very outset of this book, 
namely that all so-called mental activity is a process governed by our psychophysical condition at the time when the particular stimulus is received. This being so, it is obvious that the reason a person falls a victim to some unreasoning fear is that his condition of general psychophysical functioning at the time when he receives the stimulus to which the fear is the reaction is below a normal and satisfactory standard. Footnote. It is common knowledge that a person is more subject to infections, cold, etc., when he is, as we say, run down, that is, in a more or less lowered psychophysical condition. And a footnote. For if his condition of general functioning were normal, his reaction to the particular sensory stimulus would be a normal reaction, not an unreasoning phobia. It follows, therefore, that the patient for illustration must have been below the standard of normal psychophysical functioning at the time of the establishment of the phobia. That is, he must have been beset with a condition of debauched kinesthesia, the result of imperfect coordination, imperfect adjustment, and unreliable and delusive sensory appreciation. The question, then, I must ask again is, what can be done by the unraveling procedure of psychoanalysis to remedy these serious defects of general psychophysical functioning? Will psychoanalysis, as practiced, restore a reliable sensory appreciation to the patient and coordinate and re-educate his psychophysical mechanisms on a general basis? Certainly not. The psychophysical condition which permitted the establishment of the first phobia will permit the establishment of another. All that is needed is the stimulus. The method of psychoanalysis, therefore, like other methods of treatment on a subconscious basis, is an instance of an end-gaining attempt to effect the cure of a specific trouble by specific means, without consideration being given to the necessity of restoring a satisfactory standard of general psychophysical functioning and of sensory appreciation. Fundamental defect of our plan of civilization a lack of recognition of the importance of the principle of prevention on a general basis. It is the recognition in practice of the principle of prevention which makes possible man's advancement to higher and higher stages of evolution and opens up the greatest possibilities for human activities and accomplishment. I have illustrated and insisted upon this point thus fully because I wish to emphasize what in my opinion constitutes a fundamental defect in a plan of civilization at least 2,000 years old, namely that in all attempts at reform or improvement in spheres where the well-being of the creature is concerned, human energy has been and still is expended mainly on the adoption of plans based upon methods of specific cure, instead of upon the principle of prevention. For many years past I have endeavored to put this point of view before those who have consulted me, for I have found that in the case of a new pupil, even after I have made my diagnosis of the malconditions present, explained their actual cause or causes, and described the practical procedures I should adopt to remedy such malconditions, I am still generally asked, have you ever cured a case like mine? 
In answer, I point out that I do not undertake to cure anything or anyone. I merely look at the subject before me as a damaged machine, as it were. Note the badly used mechanisms, the imperfect sensory direction and control, and in the light of my experience, ask myself, can one restore this machine, improve the mechanical working, build up a new and satisfactory sensory direction and control, restore a well-coordinated condition of the psychophysical organism as a whole? In other words, instead of trying to remove specific symptoms directly, method of cure, I endeavor to bring about such a readjustment of the organism as a whole that the symptoms in question disappear in the process and are not likely to recur if the new conditions are maintained. Principle of prevention. Footnote. As I write these words, I can imagine my readers, sooner or later, asking this question. Why then, if you advocate a plan of life founded on the principle of prevention, have you yourself continued to work in a more or less curative sphere? The answer to this is simple. In the first place, the principle of prevention should be applied to children at a very early age, and secondly, up to the present it has proved impossible to create a sufficient demand for fundamental psychophysical re-education to induce young men and women to study it with a view to professional teaching in the preventive sphere. This implies that their work must be confined to children, and the reader will at once see the difficulty in which we are placed. We are faced with the inevitable law of supply and demand, Parents must first be themselves convinced of the need for fundamental psychophysical re-education and of the value of the technique I have to offer before they will entrust their children for the time necessary and in sufficient numbers to create a demand that will make it possible for young men and women to take up the work on a sound professional and financial basis. Up till now, what the parents have said is, we will first come to you ourselves, then, if you are able to cure our psychophysical defects, we will consider the matter in relation to our children. It is in vain that I protest that I do not set out to cure anything. You see, they reply, for us to accept your work as the basis for our children's education means such a complete change in all our views and methods. It means practically beginning afresh and giving up so much that we have been taught is true up till now, that we cannot interfere with our children's education without first having the proof of your work in ourselves. Some of my scientific supporters are no less insistent on these points. Under these circumstances, my reader will understand that I am forced to work in a so-called curative sphere with adults in the hope that they may help me in my efforts to gain a wide recognition of the necessity for re-education on a general basis and for preventive measures for the children. For once we have created amongst parents a demand for teachers of the work in the interest of the children, the first part of the problem will have been solved. For the supply, the material will be there and will in time bring the right type of man and woman into the work. I am anxious and ready to devote the rest of my life and the experience I have gained, relatively small though this may be, to preparing teachers to teach the children. 
To this end, we need to establish a school for the education of teachers. Such a plan, however, is not without its difficulties, if the right type of man and woman is to be induced to take up the work. A number of people in England and America have been working with me to the end of establishing such a school. We are all aware of the harm we can do to the cause if we attempt to gain this end quickly, at the cost of training only those people who are able to bear the financial burden involved during the necessary years of training, irrespective of the standard to which those psychophysical potentialities which go to the making of a teacher have been developed in their case. Such an attempt could end only in comparative failure and in the long run do much to delay the wide acceptance of the principles involved. And a footnote. This implies, in the case of some pupils, a long process, for it means a gradual building up of new and satisfactory psychophysical use, and the pupil's cooperation in this process must be based upon a reasoning rather than a blind acceptance of the principles involved. If at the end of our talk... I consider that there is any doubt on the part of the prospective pupil, I beg him to read my book, study the principles therein set down, and then, if he comprehends and believes in these principles, I suggest that he should come to me for help, but not otherwise. In all seriousness, I beg of him not to come simply because he believes that I can cure him of something. I am ready to admit that anything will sometimes effect a cure, as cure is generally understood. But the case of the exceptional cure, by whatever means, whether by course of medical treatment, by suggestion, transfer, or by any other method, accompanied as these cures are by thousands of failures, cannot justify any reasoning person in attempting or promising a continuance of cures on these lines. I hold that we have reached a stage in our development when all attempts to remove the cause or causes of suffering which do not come within the scope of reasoned practical procedure must, with a broader view, be definitely abandoned, and that we should ere now have passed the stage of ignorance and narrowness which permits the human creature to entertain for a moment the idea of a miracle. The miracle worker and the advocates of cure methods have had free scope for over two thousand years. But despite this fact, there has been a gradual increase in malconditions and in the symptoms and complications connected therewith, and therefore a correspondingly increasing need for a cure. I would even state that, in my opinion, the fact that man has not been guided by his reasoning processes in connection with the problems of his well-being is responsible for the tragedy of his progress in civilization. The crisis of 1914 serves to show us that he has released forces which he is not capable of controlling, and by means of which millions of his fellow beings have been swept from the earth, and it would seem that man is simply preparing the way for his own extinction, unless those energies which in the past have been directed into harmful channels in the outside world are in the future directed and controlled by reasoning processes which have been primarily employed in connection with the use of his psychophysical organism. This horrible recrudescence of barbarity is for the moment held in check. 
but like a fire whose white heated embers have been cooled by water on the outside, a process which has merely served to intensify the degree of heat of the embers which this drenched crust encloses, it will sooner or later burst once more into flame. Every ember, which in our analogy represents an individual human being, must be dealt with singly and separately. And if we wish to prevent another fierce outbreak, we must treat each ember in such a way that it will be as difficult to fire it as it is to fire a piece of stone. Similar treatment of the individual human creature on a basis of constructive conscious control will bring near that stage of evolutionary development where the masses, when thrown together, will no longer exhibit the inflammable traits associated with the horde instinct. It is clear, then, that our first efforts to enable man to rise above the depth in which he is now struggling, and from which many people today believe he cannot extricate himself, should be devoted to the establishment in the individual of a reliable sensory appreciation, by means of conscious reasoning guidance, so as to prevent the recurrence of the disasters which have hitherto been associated with the activities of men and women whose judgments, opinions, and policies have been based more upon a deteriorated sense of feeling than upon reasoning. Just stop for a moment and think, for instance, of the lack of reasoning associated with the continuance of a plan of life under which the child, the adult of the future, is permitted gradually to develop imperfections and defects, so that, long ere the age of adolescence is reached, some curative method of treatment has to be adopted in an attempt to eradicate imperfections and defects which, under a reasoning plan of life, would never have been permitted to become present. Under such a reasoning plan of life, the principle of prevention would be the fundamental underlying the child's education, which means that from the beginning preventive measures would be adopted where the well-being of the child is concerned. The attempt to deal with a form of education based on a principle of prevention will lead into many fields of discussion, and probably force me, by way of illustration, to set down descriptions of technical evolutions, a procedure which, on the face of it, would seem to be an encouragement to people to cling to the curative and to neglect the preventive plan of life. But I wish here to free myself from responsibility for any such serious harm as invariably follows the attempt of the ordinary subconsciously controlled human being to follow written instructions for some exercise, drill, etc., with the aim of eradicating a defect or imperfection. I have already pointed out in Man's Supreme Inheritance that even though a person may succeed by this means in eradicating some specific defect or imperfection, he will be cultivating in the process quite a number of other defects. And in what follows, I hope to make clear the reason for this generally unrecognized fact. For the fundamental shortcoming underlying all human psychophysical defects, imperfections and peculiarities is an imperfect and often delusive sensory appreciation. And until those conditions are restored in which the sensory appreciation, sense register, becomes again a more or less reliable guide, all exercises are a positive danger. 
A reliable sensory appreciation, therefore, is an essential. And we will proceed to consider the part which this invaluable human endowment must play in any reasoned and satisfactory plan of education. I shall therefore devote the rest of this volume to an examination of the part played by sensory appreciation in the process called education, taking this word in its broadest sense. For it is clear from tragic evidence all around us that despite the influence of our past education, we have not been enabled to stem the rapid progress of human psychophysical deterioration. I shall attempt by practical illustrations to demonstrate that the establishment of a reliable sensory appreciation must be the foundation of education of children and of adults in what we call the act of learning and learning to do, or in the performance of all the activities which make up the daily round of occupations and recreations. End of section 7